0: Welcome to the JIMD podcast, just one of the many places you can find the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease online. We can now also be found on YouTube alongside our other social media homes on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. If you're looking for more traditional ways to interact with the journal, then why not try the Wiley Online Library app, where you can add JIMD and JIMD reports to your favourites and take the journal with you wherever you go. But for now, settle down and hear how guidelines guide research and research drives guidelines. Hello there. Regulars to the podcast will know that we love talking about guidelines. So this podcast is a bit of a deep dive into how guidelines are developed, but also how those guidelines guide research as we discuss the paper, How Guideline Development Has Informed Clinical Research for Organic Acid Ureas and Vice Versa. And discussing this, I'm delighted to welcome back two friends of the podcast from the Division of Neuropediatric and Metabolic Medicine in Heidelberg. I have Dr. Nicholas Boy. And from the Division of Metabolism and Children's Research Center, I have Dr. Patrick Forney. Nicholas and Patrick, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, James. Hi there.
1: Yeah, I'm delighted to be back.
0: <laughs> Good. <laughs> That's what I hope. It's been a while. Um, so obviously, we're returning to the organic acidemias. In the last few months, it feels a bit like we've never left. So before we get going... How would you collectively describe this group of conditions?
1: Uh yeah James as you mentioned this topic has come up in previous podcasts many times. And I remember one of the detailed descriptions Chuck Mandidi gave to you, and I recommend going back to that description, which he very extensively describes uh, all the facets of organic acidurias, especially methylmalonic aciduria and propionic aciduria. But to shortly summarize, these are conditions where organic acids accumulate. So it's defects in the metabolism of carboxylic acids that are activated by co- And the classical organic acidurias are caused by enzyme defects in the branch chain amino acid metabolism. And two of the most prominent ones are methylmalonic aciduria and propionic aciduria. That's where our guideline has focused on. And there often you have a clinical phenotype that can present in kind of two forms. Often there is a neonatal form where we call this the intoxication type, so Toxic metabolites accumulate, they interfere with lots of other pathways, mostly in the mitochondria, namely the Krebs cycle or the urea cycle, and they cause acute symptoms. So in the neonates, they would cause lethargy, vomiting, dehydration, and eventually a, a picture of a systemic illness that could end up very severely. And then there is also the late onset form for patients that have usually a milder defect that present later in life. With potentially also acute episodes, but also chronic progression of organ dysfunction, including mainly the brain and the kidney, the kidney, especially in MMA. So, this is kind of where the classical organic acidurias come in. But then there are also conditions within the organic acidurias, such as glutaric aciduria type one, that mainly have cerebral abnormalities. And there, I'd like to hand off to Nikki to describe those. Yeah, exactly. I can just add that there is a
2: subgroup of organic acidurias called the cerebral organic acidurias. And they are characterized by the fact that we also have accumulating metabolites and organic acids within the body, and they primarily affect the brain. So that's why they're called cerebral organic acidurias but they are not characterized by acute laboratory decompensation features like the classic organic aciduria, such as hyperammonemia or hypoglycemia or elevated lactate. So this is not the case. It's a accumulation within the body, mainly within the brain causing symptoms, acute symptoms or chronic symptoms, and they are primarily neurologic. So you have symptoms like encephalopathy, chronic developmental delay, epilepsy, or movement disorder of any kind. But the term may also be misleading or maybe changed a little bit in the future because in GA1, we did the observation that extra neurologic manifestations may occur even in a cerebral organic aciduria. So it's it's an historic term and it's still
0: correct, but maybe it needs to be adapted and revised in the future. It's always a difficult. Uh, Jean-Marie Sadebrae said to me sometimes you can try to be perfect, or you can try to be simple, and and sometimes that makes things a little bit too complicated when you try to be perfect. <laughs> um, so, Nicholas, it wasn't so long ago that we actually spoke about GA1. And Patrick, I spoke with you and Matthias Baumgartner about MAMPA. I think about eighteen months ago. We know these guidelines are popular. Uh, why do you keep revise them so often? Is it is it just for the uh, for the citations? <laughs> Of course, only for the citations.
2: (laughs) No, uh, we are are happy that they are so popular and that people really read them because I think they are very important work, important for the patient and also important for the scientific community. I think the reason why it is necessary to revise them frequently is, I think our aim is always to implement new research finding and new research developments into the guideline process. And on the other side, also the guideline process is stimulating new research areas and new questions that come up. So this is a a very concomitant and interactive development and relation. So I think it's necessary to keep track, you know, and to really regularly implement these new findings into the clinical practice so that the patients can really benefit from it. I think another thing is that not only research is changing and there are new findings, you also have a change of methodology. There is new aspects coming like the patient perspective that had been implemented. So there's a lot of new developments that also have to be implemented into a guideline, making it necessary to to revise them. But for GA1 specifically, you can really see that the history of the guideline is also the history of different scientific conclusions drawn at a specific time point that really influenced the guidelines at that specific time. And I think this is something unique about GA1. If you think about before the very first guideline in 2007, there was a general doubt that this disease can even be treated or if it's really necessary to to implement it in newborn screening, because people said, you cannot do anything about the disease. Why, Why do it? Then we had this Huge revolution end of the 90s with development of newborn screening and mass spectrometry, allowing to detect the disease. And that was kind of the base for the very first guideline in 2007. But still the data on treatment was very, very scarce. And also the strength of recommendation, especially for the dietary treatment, was very weak. It was primarily actually emergency treatment that was already being shown to be very effective and have a positive outcome effect. And then the first revision in 2011 was already based on observational and prospective studies that really showed that the use of the guideline does really have an impact on outcome. So these patients that had been treated according to the recommendations really had a better outcome. I think that was a, a huge and very, very important point. And then in the following years, you had many studies that helped to increase the evidence, helped to increase the strength of the recommendation for newborn screening, for the metabolic treatment. We learned that it is primarily the quality and the adherence to, to this metabolic treatment, maintenance and emergency that had the, the most dominant outcome effects rather than anything else, biochemical subtypes, biomarkers, or anything else. And we learned that concomitant to these guideline revisions, and then for the very last revision that we did in the last years, we also implemented new findings such as extra stridal manifestations, new aspects for monitoring, but also for safety of long-term treatment. So you see, this is, I think, the reason why it is still very, very important to regularly revise guidelines and implement these findings into the recommendations.
1: Yeah, You make uh, many excellent points, Nicholas. I think I can only add very few. I think it's important to be explicit. This podcast is about this paper where we discuss all the points that Nicholas just mentioned. So we're not directly discussing the guidelines. So we're kind of trying to zoom out in this paper to see how have Things changed over time. What was the new evidence that needed to be incorporated? And how has the development of the guidelines made the scientific community or the community in general aware of knowledge gaps that then later needed to be addressed in, in newer studies? I think that's the important point of, of our paper, which uh, Nicholas Nicely summarized in with regards to MMA and PA, some of the main new points that we felt needed to be incorporated into a revision were mainly concerning aspects of transplantation or, or dietary treatment where there is still a lot of new evidence coming out, still no common way to treat patients or to guide them through specific pathways with regards to transplantation, especially. So whenever there is new evidence coming out, previous guidelines might not be up to date anymore and they need to be revised. So that's, that's why we do that.
0: It's quite a sobering thought that they, given the first guideline for GA1 came out in 2007, your, your patients managed as per guideline are only 15. They're still pediatric patients that we, uh, we're seeing. And as you said, it's uh, obviously changed a lot over time and it's completely changed the outlook for a family receiving that diagnosis today. Yes, absolutely and maybe
2: just at the point that I think you know, newborn screening has dramatically changed the face of this disease. And I think it is really, really interesting how these children that really benefited from newborn screening really develop on the long-term run. I think what we really learned is this is a very successful intervention. It is really useful to screen. I think you can really very nicely show that for GA1 but there is also some limitations okay we we also have learned that treatment is very very important in g1 and it's really the quality and depending on deviations we can really assess or evaluate a specific risk for neurological damage so quality of treatment is very important but still it is important that the patients do not exclusively benefit from treatment. So there are still uh, certain areas regarding the phenotype that do not seem to be influenceable by the treatment. And there are different um, subjects and, and topics on that. I'm sure we're going to talk about them. And I think this is the big question. It's something that we all also learned. We have something that we still need to understand how to improve the effect of our treatments. Although we have identified the patients early and although we have prevented the most severe manifestations of the disease, but now we come to you know the more precise and the the fine improvement of the outcome. For example, about a third of patients that have been identified by newborn screening, they still have some kind of cognitive disabilities. They show mild cognitive delay. A lot of patients still about one-third they need supportive treatment. So that was something that we did not no, at the very beginning when newborn screening was introduced and we said okay the prevention of stridal injury that is everything and now everything is fine we learn it is important but there are, now there are new and open questions that come up with time so i think that's something that we really learned from these 15
0: years and i think we're starting to talk about how these guidelines or show us what we don't know and show us where we need to, to look. When you're determining sort of targets for research, there's obviously different ways to approach that. In one of the rare sort of non organic acidemia podcasts of late, I spoke to guests about a priority setting partnership in primary mitochondrial disease and looked at how that shapes research targets. That approach really puts the patient voice front and center in terms of thinking about what they wanted from research into their condition. Do guidelines involve patients? And has that always been the case? Um, So
1: for MMA and PA guidelines, there is one revision, meaning there are two full guidelines out there and patients, patient representatives, as they are called, because how do you include patients as a whole? The way guidelines have done that usually is by inviting patient representatives to participate in devising those guidelines. And in the very first guideline, there was one patient representative who was involved in the development. This person was consulted on certain aspects, but not in a structured way. Nevertheless, there was already the awareness that patient representatives can be very valuable in terms of guiding the guidelines to be useful to the patients in the end, because that's one of the main purposes to eventually serve the patients. In the second version of the guidelines, in the first revision, we included two patient representatives to kind of broaden the spectrum a little bit. But still, I think it's one of the questions, how do we best include patient representatives or patients themselves into the development of guidelines, the way we have done it in the first revision now is not only to consult them specifically, but include them into the process of developing these guidelines in a structured way. So there are certain steps, and that was one of the reasons also to revise those guidelines, to use newly available tools to evaluate evidence and to have a stepwise procedure, how this evidence is evaluated and at what points patient representatives can be consulted directly on specific questions and when the expert panel is consulted regarding specific questions. And this has been done at the very initial stage as well to rate outcomes. So outcomes are the main sort of tool these guidelines are structured by. To evaluate outcomes, I just name a few examples such as survival or kidney injury or quality of life or aspects like this to rate them accordingly and to make sure this is a complete catalog that is actually relevant to patients. So this catalog has been consulted with with the patient representatives and also been rated. So we knew which outcome parameters are actually more important than others to put emphasis on those in the guideline development. And then also to reflect the recommendations that were generated back to the patient representatives to to say, is this now something that is useful? Is this something that can be achieved in your specific environment and and things like that? So there have been always patient involvement and it has improved with the first revision for the MMAPA guidelines, but I think there is still a lot of room to further improve on that in my view.
2: Absolutely, and I just would like to add, I think it's very important, and Patrick just talked a lot about specific features of the great methodologies, so the methodology that was implemented in both the MMAPA and also the G1 guidelines during the last revisions, and one of the features of these new methodology is the introduction and implementation of the patient perspective. So it is really required, actually, that for each recommendation, for each formulation that you develop, that you consider the patient perspective. And that is the reason why a patient representative should really be part of the guideline group and really take part in the consultations, because the patients have to follow the recommendations. And what we specifically uh, did with the g one guideline group was for each recommendation, this perspective was specifically discussed and, and considered in addition to specific other uh, criteria, such as the benefit between harms or economic considerations or the strength of evidence, the consistency of evidence and all these great criteria. But one very important is really the patient perspective. On the other side, I think it is important that guideline groups are also independent and that there is a very structured and standardized way how to to set up a guideline group and how to do the contribution and that there is a standardized process, the PICO process that really helps to identify the relevant key questions and then to really formulate and develop recommendations for these specific questions.
0: And I mean, we started talking about the questions and the guidelines. And when we think about research in rare disease, perhaps naively when I think about research in rare disease, the focus is often on treatment. But from what you discuss in your paper, it's clear that there's still a fair bit of work required around diagnostics and biochemical evaluation. Of course. I think it's both
2: very important. I mean, regarding G1, the diagnostics, they nowadays start with newborn screening. And it is, as I explained, a highly successful intervention, but still we have the problem that we have quite a high rate of false positive results in newborn screening, for example. So to develop sensitivity and improve sensitivity and specificity for GL1 screening, I think is very, very important because you want, of course, to avoid every false positive result that you can in a newborn screening panel program. On the other side, we know that we miss some part of the low excretus because they have no increased concentrations of glutaral carnitine. They have completely normal concentrations, so they are missed by newborn screening. And they have a very, very poor outcome. It's actually comparable to the pre-screening area. So alone in Germany, we had six cases and and all of them are severely handicapped. So this is, I think, one one huge effort to increase the newborn screening effects. Of course, we still have patients coming from countries without newborn screening for GA1 or for any reason they did not undergo the newborn screening. So still... The clinical diagnosis is still relevant today. So doctors should still know how a patient with GA1 may look like and what symptoms uh, we would expect. Sometimes patients maybe undergo an MRI from the so-called late-onset patients, and they come with very unspecific signs to the doctor, and then someone is doing an MRI. And then you still need doctors that detect the GA1-specific MRI abnormalities and think of the disease especially in older patients that have been born before newborn screening area. And nowadays, everyone is doing exome diagnostics. And there are also patients that come with a GCDH gene abnormality in their exome that was done to a specific reason. So this is also something I think that is challenging the diagnostic process. On the other side, I think still the biochemical subtypes has for a very long time, not being um, a predictor for outcomes. So the, the rate of movement disorder, the risk for stridal injury was the same between low and high excretus. But from the recent years, we have learned that there are differences between both groups. The high excretus, they have more abnormalities regarding the white matter abnormalities. They have more extra stridal abnormalities. They have a poorer cognitive outcome they tend to have the subdural bleedings within the first three years of life that is specific for also for G1. So there are differences and it's something that is observed during the last years or coming up during the last years. But still, I think treatment optimization is still a very relevant subject for G1, especially the long-term treatment, because this is still an open question how do we need to treat patients in adolescence and adulthood? How intense should the lysine restriction be? And what else do we have to consider? I think there's still
1: a lot of room for optimization of long-term treatment. Um, just when you mentioned these different aspects, James, treatments, diagnostics, biochemistry, I think a future way to to manage these patients could be that we obtain a lot of data on these patients already now. So ideally, we have a a deep phenotyping, meaning a thorough assessment of the clinical signs and symptoms. We have some classical biochemistry parameters. We might even add like new technologies to obtain a multiomics data set. Then we have information on the protein levels, on the RNA levels, on the genomics. And with all that information, ideally, we will be able in the future to merge all this information and come up with, first of all, a prognosis for a specific individual, and then eventually also guide the management of that individual based on all that information. Because currently, we're not really able to do that. So in MMAPA, especially with the very hot topic of organ transplantation, we're not really able to say which patients should undergo transplantation and which transplantation and at what age and so on. And ideally in the future, we kind of merge all this, we we merge the diagnostic part, we merge the biochemistry, we merge the phenotypic assessment of the patient to then come up with tailored pathways for management of each uh, individual patient. This is kind of my vision of a future guideline.
0: So sort of the ultimate imprecision medicine.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: Um, and I mean, I suppose the, the crux of your article is, is this relationship between guidelines and research. I mean, so what should the relationship be between the two? Which one drives the other? And I guess if if the guideline group includes all the researchers, all the researchers you've chosen to include. Does that exclude perhaps more disruptive thinkers who might come in and and take the field forward in another direction?
2: Um, Well, as I explained in the beginning, I think it is the one does not go without the other. Both rely on each other and need each other, so guideline and research. And as I just described in the beginning, specifically for G1, we really were able to learn how observational studies, how prospective studies, with larger and larger sample size really help to evaluate specific effects of different treatment interventions and that one after the other. So first we uh, learned about newborn screening, we learned about emergency treatment, then we learned about the dietary treatment, then we learned that there are different ways of dietary treatment and that they are not equal in their effectiveness of prevention. So the low lysine diet, really calculating the lysine in the diet with the supplementation of a lysine-free tryptophan-reduced arginine-fortified amino acid, this is the most effective treatment that was really shown in many studies, including a meta-analysis. This is something that we only learned by these concomitant studies. I think we additionally learned that these studies are from a methodological point of view even more valuable if the sample size is of course as large as as possible and i think this really stresses the importance of patient registries including them try to really collect patients and collect them using a standardized data set and then doing specific research really on these optimized sample sizes. I think this is a very, very important thing. And then we can have the most effective information and exchange with then the guideline revisions that really depend on these findings and
1: depend on developments like that. And I think one important comment on this question is also the following. You're saying that if the guideline group includes all the researchers, does that exclude disruptive thinking or inclusion of unusual ideas that actually bring the field forward? I think that's a good point. And there is the question how we talked about it before when we talked about patient representatives, how do you compose the group that will devise those guidelines? I think that's an important question. But It's also at the same time, very important to note that Nicholas has in detail talked about the tools that we use when devising those guidelines, and they should to some extent prevent certain conflict of interest. They should to some extent prevent personal incentives or opinions to directly influence recommendations and guidelines because these tools, they provide a process through which Evidence is evaluated, evidence is graded, and evidence is then used to formulate recommendations. So it's a structured approach which should prevent, to some extent, influence of the individual members of the guideline group. Of course, it's still important how the guideline group is composed, but at the same time, I think it's important for the audience to be aware that this is a structured process which should streamline and make sure that there is a certain standard for these management guidelines. And also maybe just one point to add, to provide
2: a very transparent kind of report or what Patrick just explained, how the whole guideline process of the composition of the group is is being laid out, that all of this development is really transparently available and that if you want to have a look at it and really see how it was conducted, that you are able to see all the details. Uh, I think this is something that is very important. And I think regarding the composition, it really is important to have a representative composition of the healthcare process. You need the relevant disciplines that are really part of managing and supervising and diagnosing patients with these diseases. And I think they should be part of the group in addition to the patients, of course, that we talked
0: about earlier. Okay, so it seems that the the two things are sort of fundamentally interconnected and and utterly inseparable. I mean, I, I kind of feel this question has been answered already, but I was going to ask the two of you, we're a bit stuck for time, but whether you've both got a single wish for your conditions, for what is your kind of your big research target, I suspect you've sort of answered this, but if you could pick one thing to move your field forward, what would it be?
1: Well, of course, we will come back to treatment options, right? In the end, we do all this research on understanding the pathophysiology or the biochemistry. We just published a multiomics paper where we really try to figure out how does the metabolic landscape change in MMA and how could we interfere with certain metabolites to support the metabolism of energy generation in the TCA cycle and things like that. Eventually, it is down to treatment. So if there is one wish, then it would be to understand the pathophysiology to an extent that we are actually able to interfere directly with the pathomechanisms to improve metabolism, to improve eventually the symptoms and signs in patients, to improve their health and quality of life. And um, for GA1, I can say like every
2: project that we finish, sometimes I have the impression that the more we learn about the disease, the less we know it's really, you just notice that it's such a complex disease and you arise more and more questions when you actually were hoping to, to answer most of the important ones. So I think this disease is still developing the phenotypic diversity is still developing i think we still do not know what is actually happening in what parts of the body at what time point what do we have to consider i think this is one of the main 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 target for research and how do we positively influence it by treatment and by what treatment i think this is really one of the most important research targets in the future Additionally, the discussion, of course, about alternative treatment concepts, I think exploiting the very complex lysine pathway, a pathway that is still not fully understood today, is a very central aspect regarding maybe development of new concepts of treatment. So you see there's still a lot of very, very uh, interesting and very important fields in the GA1 field. And I think uh, we will not stop to learn uh, and to be surprised by the the disease and the findings that we have.
0: Well, if you keep learning about it, I'll keep asking you questions about it, I guess. Well, thank you both so much. It's always a pleasure listening to you talk. If people would like to read the paper, please click the link in the podcast description or go to the journal webpages and search for how guideline development has informed clinical research. Nicholas and Patrick, thank you again for your time this afternoon. Thank you, James. Have a good day, James. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.